There are many strong voices supporting Ukraine and many Ukrainians that are active in supporting and promoting its cause throughout the West. Few are more vocal and effective than Yana Rodienka, and few followed with more enthusiasm and affection. She has a strong voice on platforms like LinkedIn, and despite being repeatedly banned, she bounces back to fight the good fight. Welcome to Silicon Curtain. All our content is also available on popular podcasting platforms like Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Please like and subscribe to help brilliant new speakers that we feature on the channel. And of course, if you enjoy the content, consider supporting us by becoming a patron. Now, Jana, I've been reading your posts on LinkedIn for really the entirety uh, uh, of the war since you started posting. And it's a huge, huge privilege to be able to speak to you today. Thank you very much for having me today. And I'm very um, honored and uh, also privileged to be able to write and also uh, people who are interested in my content that I'm sharing. And I'm really like, like I'm very grateful for them to be interested in, uh, in such topic. Now you have a really strong following on, on LinkedIn. Um, and I know how incredibly tough it is to actually build an audience and to get engagement. And for those who aren't familiar with your material, we will, of course, post a link so they can find it. But you create text-based material. You do sort of sort of video blogs. Um, could you describe to me how your activism began and how your technique has evolved over the months to build the incredibly loyal and fanatical audience that you now have? Uh, thank you for this question. Um, I will already say that I will be honest and I will be direct. And of course, that this, this topic, uh, I will be very personal, uh, like uh, with personal content, personal uh, moments. Uh, just before our conversation, I had my session with a therapist, like a psychological therapist, and uh, I visit, uh, I have it like uh, each one week or each, uh, like every week. Uh, because for me, as a person who saw war crimes, who was under the war, uh, under the Russian occupation for me is extre extremely hard and uh, you just need to cope and work on it and uh, and we just discussed today that she knows about my activism and uh, she said that it's very it was co uh, correct way that I started my activism not not uh, immediately but I gave myself myself some time to to recover after because uh, I was under the, under the Russian occupation in February and March 2022, but actively socially, I became uh, very active only in August when I be, when I came to the Netherlands. So uh, I was like also like these weeks, uh, those uh, months, I was also very active, but not in such a structured way, not with like direct message or like a concrete message. Uh, so it was uh, more chaotic, uh, but uh, like, uh, but I think that I started like my LinkedIn uh, profile, like working on it and uh, being very active uh, only in August, uh, because I needed those months to to recover because I wasn't able. And uh, just imagine how many voices of Ukrainians are now muted because they are not able to speak. Even they they have a story to share, but they are not able to speak because some people are now under the occupation, some people just was uh, liberated, or if war crime were, happened to them, like as looting or rape, or someone from their family were killed, they are not speaking, and because they are not able physically to speak, and I know this moment. So for me, when I'm speaking, for me, for me it's not only about myself, it's, uh, it's about a, a lot of people that are not able to speak. And I'm not talking about even those who were killed. And I spoke um, some months ago to uh, a lady called Oksana Semenyik, who is an art historian. And, you know, like your story, she survived in a basement for many weeks in Butcher. Um, and we know that in Butcher and Erpin, terrible crimes were committed. And I think she was describing to me this terrible sense. It's a kind of survivor's guilt to an extent, but... You know, her basement survived despite the terrible hardship, but almost everybody in a neighboring apartment block 
uh, did not survive in that basement. And of course, then there's the terrible story of the famous Ukrainian artist who was was already quite elderly, but actually starved uh, to death in her apartment uh, as a result of Russian actions. And it, I think we forget sometimes that you know these are, and you are an individual person and you have to deal with experiences which no one expected to have to deal with in the 21st century and then emerge from that being sort of you know functional etc um that that's a huge amount of pressure yeah thank you for recognizing it because it's really um you need to continue working like i'm 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 work i have to work because I need to to pay for my excel, like I, I need to pay for my apartment, and uh, no one gives me money. So of course I need to work. Then I'm studying on my master program, and uh, I have this social activism offline and online. So it's also very different, and uh, still that I need to have some rest, some personal life, and um, yeah, it's hard. It's hard, but uh, we are driven. We have a mission. It also makes me wonder as well. I mean. It, it... A lot of individuals, of course, are going through terrible physical trauma and mental trauma, but at the same time, the war is still on. So to an extent, you know, those who are on the front, those who are abroad, those who are living in Ukrainian cities, either closer or further away, do you think there's an extent people are suppressing, uh, you know, the, the, the worst aspects of the mental impact at the moment because there's still a need to survive, there's still a need to you know, shore up the economy, uh, get the armaments in, train, learn, fight back. Um, do you think there's going to be some kind of outpouring of uh, of, of very traumatic and, and difficult to deal with emotions when Ukraine is, is victorious? Uh, definitely. Uh, definitely, because, you know, and I don't, I'm not sure that I know it how, how it's called in English, but in Ukraine, it is like post-trauma. Uh, so it's definitely in a moment, like especially when I was in Bucha, you know, I saw like war crimes, but in a moment you don't feel it. You just you you are in a mode to survive, and you, your your most important uh, mission and goal is like you need to survive. So you do everything to survive. And now all Ukrainians, maybe they are not thinking about like survival for your own, but survival as a whole. And we are all engaged. Like I think only about victory of Ukraine, that like Ukrainians are safe and we are doing all of this. So you are in, in still in like this survival mode that you are like working to survive. And of course you don't have time to think about like, you know, what's going on, but Especially, I know I know it well uh, because I'm a person. I'm Ukrainian who was under the Russian occupation. Then I was living in Kiev when uh, Kiev was uh, uh, shelled, like when Ukraine was shelled. I, I was in in Ukraine, and then I'm uh, I'm a refugee in 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 Europe. So I was I'm in these uh, three modes, and I can promise you that it is very. Um, uh, different experience and uh, each experience is hard in its own way like of course it under the occupation is the most hardest but all other also very like challenging and uh, uh, it will appear like trauma will appear later because now I am talking to all my friends every day to, to I have friends who who is fighting now in a moment you are like you know you you live life you still smile sometimes you still have like you know dogs uh, some pets in, in on the front line and you know they take care of them they, they continue uh, like living they are dancing like ukrainians and will sing and dance all the time it doesn't matter what will happen but only after we will we will need to work a lot and uh, it's a, a challenge for our intellectuals for our authors poets you know somehow to uh, uh, artists somehow to to phrase it to put it into into the way that uh, it will become easier for people to um to to heal their heal their pain and to show it absolutely and i almost everyone i've spoken to um, seems to be dealing with the pain by being purposeful, whether it's contributing to civil society, whether activities are journalistic, uh, or they're writers, historians doing lectures, etc., or like yourself, um, you know, a, a prominent activist. It's pouring yourself into physical work and activity, which has meaning and value, 
certainly in, in victory. And some of those activities will, will have value even after victory to strengthen civil society and fight corruption. But it it's not to play down that, you know, when the camera's switched off, when you've you've done a piece of work and you stop to think, I think everyone feels the exhaustion, everyone feels the trauma and the extreme unreality of what's happening. Um, and also it, it can, I'm sure, be very pessimistic because the realization that the Russia of the 90s, which people had some hopes for, uh, is completely gone. And what we see now is a Russia that fits the mold of Ivan the Terrible, Peter the Great, Stalin. We see a colonizing, imperial, aggressive Russia, which harks back to many centuries ago. And, and, and there's a realization that that is not going to go away. You know, we're not going to get the slightly softer chaotic version of Russia we saw in the 90s. We have a Russia that is embittered, embittered, traumatized, envious, loathsome, um, and 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 yet, you know, has the money to to and 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 had the money and the material to actually act on its perverted ambitions. Um, I can only add that uh, when I look at uh, events before what was happening, all of this. Uh, I can say that uh, uh, Russia was not, was never, like for for me, uh, Russian 90s are not better than what is happening now, because especially um, when I face injustice, when I faced uh, the war, I cannot be indifferent to others' pain or to others' injustice, to others' wars. And um, Always when I think about the war in Ukraine, Russian aggression against Ukrainians, I remember two Chechen wars, uh, wars against each area and then Chechens and Chechens population is just, it's a very little nation, it's just a few millions, but they were fighting because they wanted to be uh, free, they wanted to be independent, they want to be democratic and uh, uh, Russians invaded them in uh, 1994, if I'm correct, and uh, on New Year's, it was New Year, people were going to celebrate New Year and then Russians invaded them and uh, the war lasted for one year and there was horrible, horrible war crimes. There is one documentary, uh, I will share the link. Unfortunately, it's like half in Ukrainian, half in, in, in English or in, in Russian. Uh, but I think that it's most important just to see what is there. And uh, I watched this documentary only like six months ago, like a few, and the uh, scenery, what was there, and the description of war crimes is just the same that is happening now, 1994 and 2022 the same war crimes, the same scenery. So nothing was changed. Like it wasn't good, like for me, it wasn't good because uh, then just before uh, 60s, Ukraine, during Soviet Union, uh, all uh, intelligentsia, inte intellectuals were killed in Ukraine, were executed by Soviet Union. And then like a few years later, again, and uh, Chechens and then uh, uh, Georgia, Crimea, like all of this. So it's happening all the time. So it's, for me, there is no this distinction of like some good years. And uh, uh, also about um, uh, Chechens. For me, when I was watching that movie, for me, it was so impressive to see, uh, to hear what Chechens generals were telling. They were like, uh, there, there was... Um, they were telling stuff that me, as a 24-year-old Ukrainian, I can say the same stuff about Russians, like specifically the same. And like compare Chechen 50-year-old general and then 24-year-old Ukrainian like 20 years later. I can say it's the same stuff about Russians. They committed the same, so it wasn't changed. And the first Chechen war was without Putin, so it's not about Putin. That's right. And there's, um, uh, I don't know if it's part of that documentary, but I've mentioned it in interviews last week. There's a clip of an interview with Joka Dudayev, who is one of the uh, Chechen uh, generals, uh, or leader, in fact, who was assassinated just weeks later by the Russians. Not only 
did he foresee that Chechnya would would fall and that it would become a sort of, uh, you know, warlord governed vassal of Russia. He also predicted that uh, Ukraine would be would be the target. And as you say, his predictions and comments on on Russian imperialism are incredible. Um, but what also brings that to mind is that at the time, Russian foreign propaganda was incredibly effective at labeling the Chechens as terrorists. Um, the fact that they were non-white, the fact they were Muslim, the fact that we knew nothing about them locally meant that Russian propaganda was extremely effective. We saw the same thing in Syria, where Russia was supposedly you know, fighting ISIS and bringing its own version of order. Um, but also we see the same war crimes on a vast scale, the bombing of civilians, the erasing of cities to their very foundations, block by block, the bombing of hospitals. Um, it's taken a long time for the West to stop projecting its you know, optimistic assessments, its false readings onto Russia. And in fact, I can say absolutely, that has not completely stopped either because we're now projecting our own fallacies and false hopes onto the Russian liberal opposition. So I'd love to know your, your sort of thoughts about that. Uh, yes. Um, I will try to speak very carefully because of course I can uh, be a bit emotional in the, um, I will start that, uh, I, I will immediately first say that, uh, there are, I understand I'm aware that there are some Russians who uh, contribute to victory of the, of, uh, of uh, Ukraine, who support Ukrainians, and I saw, uh, but I met only few, like, although that I'm having very huge networking online and offline, and I'm abroad, uh, I see uh, not that many people, but I see a few Russians who contribute to the victory and who support Ukraine. Although that the majority whom I met and they are Russians abroad in U in in the U.S. In, in Europe they are not supportive and from their comments I can see that they are not really they can tease me like they were teasing me for my Ukrainian flag for something else whether it says about uh, their support or their they are against of the war I'm not sure so but I am aware that there is some percentage although that we must admit it's very little percentage of of people who, who are against of the war and for me it's also it's like there should be actions in such in such times as this tragedy like there are russian aggression of war against ukrainians there must be actions you I, I won't trust a person if it just talks i need to see actions i don't i just simply don't trust them um uh, speaking about uh, Russian uh, liberals and uh, Russian opposition, uh, the most uh, famous Russian op uh, oppositioner uh, for Europeans, for Americans, uh, it's uh, uh, Navalny. Unfortunately, as a person who knows Russian, who was reading maybe a bit more, I know that he is not that good as he seems to be. Uh, because uh, he was joining many rallies which are very right-wing uh, Nazi uh, rallies. It's called uh, like uh, something with a marsh. Uh, I don't remember specific the name, uh, specifically the name. And he was joining those uh, rallies. It was in 20, 2012, in 2014, like so not that long time ago. He was joining them and they were waving Russian imperialistic flag. And then another uh, important comment about uh, Navalny that he was saying that oh like about Crimea, Crimea is not a sandwich to give it back and forth. Whether he is uh, um, he is a friend for Ukrainians? No, definitely no. Even like for us, Russian uh, like uh, Russian uh, opposition can be for for uh, Russia without Putin. 
but Russia without Putin, it doesn't mean that it is not imperialistic Russia. It doesn't mean that it's fully democratic. And when we talk about Russian opposition, we need to think what is this, uh, what is this, op uh, what this opposition is, because I'm a person who talked a bit, not, not, not fully a, a, a bit with uh, uh, Circassians, with uh, Chechens, and they are getting discriminated and they, are, they don't like and they don't prefer Russian opposition or Russian liberals because Russian liberals don't support indigenous people of Russia. So whether it makes uh, Russian liberals uh, good or bad or like uh, for us pref more preferable, they are not Putin, but uh, whether they are better, uh, I'm not sure about that. And definitely that uh, Navalny is not a friend for Ukraine with all his uh, with all his what he was doing and saying in the, his actions um i know that there was a few uh there is one uh, prominent uh, russian journalist uh she was saying very correct stuff she called russia fascist country like 10 years uh, ago she said it herself uh, and she's killed. She she is not alive. And I'm sure that any opposition that is now like you know talking and uh, if they are talking for very long time, uh, I think it's like comfortable of opposition. So it just made to to be visible. Mm -hmm. uh, my um, concern that uh, there is no protest in Russia. Um, I see a lot of nations uh, protesting. I see Iranians. Whether for Iranians it's more, it's safer to protest than for Russians, it's not safer. Like, it is not safer. Like, it's even, like, I can say that it's even more dangerous for Iranians to, uh, to, to protest, to rally than for Russians. So, so for me, this topic of security, that it's not safe, it's not really the topic because uh, give me at least one uh, uprising, give me at least one example of one uh, protest or uprising or something when it was fully democ uh, fully without violence. No, it's like you are changing the regime, you are, you are making it more democratic, but, but you are doing it like you need to change it. So it's always with uprising, it's always with some... Uh, um, it's not safe, but like if you stand with the idea, it, it, it is not safe. But it's it's for your it's your way for democracy. You need to liberate yourself. No one can liberate them. And uh, so for me, when I think about Russian rallies, they are not safer. They are not more dangerous than rallies in in Iran. And opposite opposite, it's more. If they rally a bit, the whole world will, will see. But if Iranians rally, people, uh, the world doesn't look to, to Iranians that much as they, they look at Russians. So it's very Russia-centric. Of course, you do get um, Iranians abroad with very vocal protests. You get Syrians abroad with very vocal protests. As you say, they're not covered that much on the press. There's a sort of institutional bias, obviously against... Um, certain parts of the world that we you know are less familiar to a western audience um and if there were russian-led protests they would get a huge billing and this for me is the biggest disappointment it's the lack of activism it's the lack of organized activism now again it has to be said i've been on lots and lots of marches and there have been individual russians there um they will hold ukrainian flags and in effect they become russians that are supportive of Ukrainian victory, but I suspect they lack an idea of what victory would mean within a Russian context in a democratic Russia. So they lack organization. Um, and that is extremely worrying, isn't it? Because Navalny is in prison. Uh, there are other leaders as well, like Karim Morzar um, and Ilya Yashin. There, there are some strong more democratic voices, I would say, than Navalny even, but they're either in prison uh, or abroad or silenced. Um, there seems to be very little in the way of organisation, very little in the way of effective activism. And this is where Ukrainians provide a strong contrast. Um, there are so many events in London and around Europe being run by Ukrainians, Many of them are women. We'll come to that in a minute. As to why you know women are playing such an extraordinary role 
um, in this Ukrainian sort of political renaissance. Um, but there are events, there are conferences, there are lectures, there are constant examining of the narratives of history, um, mythologies, uh, literature, and trying to reinterpret what that might mean in today's context. Um, all that seems to be absent, you know, apart from a few prominent historians, a few, as you say, uh, you know, interesting voices on the Russian side. But in scale, it just lacks the scale of what we see in Ukrainian cultural and civil society. Mm, I would like to, to say that um, as a Ukrainian, I want to see Russia democratic, independent, and they because like at least they are my neighbors <laughs> for me it is very uh, beneficial if they are democratic and uh, they don't want to invade us however we see it in very systematic way it is very systematic way towards ukrainians and their neighbors only 30 years ago we were under the russian occupation uh, under uh, soviet union only 30 years ago on during these 30 years there was already like six invasions of other countries so it's very systematic way. Uh, for me, the problem uh, lies in another uh, a bit angle that we had Nazi, Nazi Germany. Nazi Germany was defeated, and they were they admitted they, there was prosecution. They admitted to be that they were it's their fault, it's their responsibility, and then it was changed. Russians, they were never defeated they were never prosecuted and they will they were they were never accountable held accountable or responsible for their crimes and uh, russians have no less uh, war crimes than the nazi germany especially like during soviet union there were three holodomors in ukraine like seven millions of ukrainians up to seven millions of ukrainians died during holodomor uh, executed intellectuals, uh, just like um, suppressing uh, all appraisings and etc. Et so there were a lot of crimes against their own, like these uh, nations under uh, uh, in in uh, in occupation. And Russians, like it's very in systematic way to discriminate others because I have a friend of mine. She is here in uh, she's here in the Hague. We, uh, we work together a lot, and she's eighteen year old Ukrainian. But uh, it's it's it happens that she was living in Russia uh, with her parents, and she told me that from from her childhood, uh, the, all these years that she was living there. Uh, she was she was discriminated by Russians in Moscow, like white Russians, and she is white. So, you know, it cannot be like a race, but just oh, you are Ukrainian, like like Hochlushka, uh, Hoholka, and uh, all of this. And you know, it's just uh, it's just in in a way of communicating for them. It's fine that uh, all are, like nations close to them, like, like neighbors, are like you know they are. They are higher than all others. They are better. They are, uh, although there is nothing better than uh, I, I cannot say anything that they are better in. Um, so it's for me, it's very systematic way, and it's for me, it's also the way that Russians were always under one leader. So they got used to have a leader who will who will lead them, and it was never like you know really democratic, and. Uh, we call like um, I'm sorry for saying it, but uh, in Ukraine we call Russian slaves. Uh, they are slaves. Like their mentality, it's just mentality of slaves. Whether it was safe for Ukrainians to upraise in 2013 during the Maidan, uh, uh, Euro Maidan, or uh, which was later called Revolution of Dignity? No, it wasn't safe. We were so like we were already going to. To dictatorship we were there and my still like i remember that night very precisely because i was having my chat like one um, competition and then after that competition i talked with my friend and uh, and then next uh, day i was i woke up very early and uh, i was texting with friends and they told me that we got beaten on just maidan nezalezhnosti in city center of the capital students like who were 17 year old they got beaten 
but Ukrainians, what was the reaction of the society? We don't, we won't let our children be beaten. You are like, because you know, the power is in the hands of the nation, not in the hands of the leader. So for us, it was very unsafe. It was like, we were dying. There were people wounded and killed in Maidan Nezalezhnost, in, in the capital of the, in the center of the capital of Ukraine. People were killed. For us, it wasn't more safe or like, uh, so because now a Russian says, oh, it's so unsafe for us. Whether you do it or not, it's in your hands. And of course, the outcome, the outcome of that revolution was not assured. It was not guaranteed. People went out there not knowing whether they would be victorious or not. And we now know, of course, in Belarus that people also took to the streets en masse. Um, and that wasn't successful. So, you know, we have to look at these events, look at the bravery of people uh, that actually do this. Um, and not through this sort of, uh, you know, rose-tinted kind of high hindsight that uh, that people fall into. Um, and there are other characteristics that I think are quite interesting, aren't they? And, you know, Belarus has a dictatorship uh, imposed upon it. Without Putin and without the support of Russia, Lukashenko would have no chance of yeah. controlling that country. Um and to an extent, you know, Belarusians, I feel, would never have attacked their neighbor unless they were a puppet of uh, Russia. Um, you know, what, what's the difference? I'm still struggling to understand, you know, why one succeeded and the other didn't, because, you know, it was 50-50. There was a chance of an autocratic slide in Ukraine. Um, we know that the operation to... Um, take Crimea was being planned um, while, uh, you know, the Kremlin's puppet leader was still in charge of the country, Yanukovych. <clears throat> uh, I think that it's very philosophical question and um, it's very interesting question to research, to think why in some nations, why some nations did it, why some nations could become more democratic through protests and uh, why Ukrainians did it and Belarusians couldn't. Although that I, like, I remember those, uh, uh, those period very, very well. I was uh, living in Kyiv already and uh, we were coming to Belarusian embassy. We were supporting them. Uh, I know I was sharing a lot of information about like that support to support Belarus because I was having al already international friends. And uh, uh, for me, it is, um, uh, as a for human being and for Ukrainian, for me, it is precisely very sad and very painful that uh, Belarusians wasn't able to to finish, were not able to finish it because uh, because at least as a, as a person who was under the Russian occupation in Bucha, I am the direct victim of of that they didn't manage because if they managed then russians wouldn't attack us from belarusian side um uh, we were talking i remember a few posts on social media about it and i think that um that ukrainians have this very long history of fighting for independence we were fighting for independence when there was like a, a Cossack state uh, it was uh, 17th century. We were fighting against and we were trying to get our liberation in 18th century, in 19th century. So we have this, if you look at the history, we have these centuries of fighting for, demo, for, for, for independence and against Polish or against uh, Russians or uh, um, uh, against uh, uh, Mon Mongols. And it seems that it's like very long here, like it's like I'm I'm 24 year old, I haven't seen any of those, but it is really in our like, let's say blood, or let's say that it's in, uh, it's in our poems. It's like when I read Ukrainian poetry, I see this, you know, that you need to be united and fight against because so it's build us. So it's build us. Even that we were suppressed very hard, very hard, very with huge violence. We were suppressed for for centuries. Each generation was suppressed. 
we managed to fight in 2014. We managed to to to, to stand, and uh, uh, in 2014 and in 2013, 14, I I'm sure that um, there was no no democratic leaders who will lead us. No people just students themselves they just like oh let's go to to stand for because because Yanukovych refused to sign um uh, like this document and you, you Ukrainians just oh let's go students were said let's go and stand because we want to be in Europe we want to be democratic we want to 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 live this life freely and they got beaten and uh, Ukrainians without a leader, like we don't need a leader, but we went to to fight for our children. So it is the difference, maybe in the hist, like in this background that we were fighting for 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 independence for centuries, and we couldn't we couldn't get it. I don't know the history of Belarus of Belarus as well, but uh, I just know and I remember there was some point that they don't have that long history of uh, of uh, of getting of fighting for independence so maybe they just not that as a nation they're not that mature yet to 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 get it to fight for it but of course that we are very open uh to like i have belarusian friends um in the we stand with them we we support them uh but uh for example, in my student association, I said that uh, on individual level, uh, Belarusians are welcomed in our student associations, but but as a country, they are not they won't be represented. Belarusian flag and Russian flag cannot stand next to Ukrainian flag. Politically, is not correct, and anywhere else, like in any events, cultural, sport, anywhere, it cannot be. It, exactly right. You know, it uh, it, it was the it was the equivalent of trying to get, uh, you know, Nazis and Jews to sit down, you know, in public forums in 1942. You know, it's just not something anyone should be doing and they should have the cultural sensitivity to understand how painful that is. Now, talking of this sort of, um, call it this activism or the unwillingness to take rules from others or kowtow to authority, some of the Ukrainians I've spoken to have even called it ingrained stubbornness, which you know, in, in a positive way, um, those qualities seem to be present in you because you've been active on LinkedIn. And I don't know how many times you've been banned, but you're banned over and over and over for posts which are simply telling the truth and not in a graphic way. You are simply pointing out the facts of what's going on. Um, so could you describe a bit the sort of lack of support you get from the tech social media platforms and how you persevere in bouncing back despite being banned? How many times is it? Uh, so for, for as of today, I was banned five times. Uh, as people say, after the third time, people are not getting back. I'm banned five. Uh, it is kind of a magic. Um, uh, I can say, first of all, that each time that I am banned, something very unusual happened. Some severe, very brutal violence happened. I uh, each day, each time, like I don't remember, of course, the first time, uh, but I uh, I can have a look. But last uh, last time that I was banned. It was so so brutal and painful and uh, harsh war crimes committed by Russians, and of course that I'm telling the truth. It is my mission uh, to tell the truth. It is my mission to. I'm not calling for violence. Like it is, there is a, a difference that social media are not ready yet for, and we are not build it very well. We didn't design it yet. That. I'm telling people, I'm letting people know that violence happened. And it's very different from calling for violence. And people, social media doesn't see the, the difference. They don't see it. And um, they don't recognize this difference. Although that I said that it happened in Ukraine by Russians, and it is a fact, but they don't see it. And they, they, uh, they say that, oh, like you cannot call them Russians, but who did it? Like Russians did it. Like, and they, social, social media just, just doesn't want me to call 
Russians, like how, what should I tell? Who, who did it? Who, like not Russians, but who? Uh, in social media, doesn't want me to call them that the Russians did committed it. Um, another side that um, uh, last time that I was uh, I was uh, banned, it was uh, horrible. Uh, video was released when uh, a Ukrainian prisoner of the war was uh, beheaded and of course that you are speechless like it's uh, you you are simply speechless and there is uh, I don't know I, I can't say anything about that another time that I was banned it was when uh, Uman uh, and her son were shelled also like uh, shopping mall was shelled uh, children died just in a shopping mall and I'm banned after that whether I'm doing something uh, something uh, in the wrong way or it is uh, uh, that social media are biased um, I see the difference uh, towards myself because first um, usually they have this operation that you need to you, you are getting banned, then you appeal, and then you wait one, two weeks, they connect you, then they tell you why you are banned. Like, they don't tell why you are banned, but they show you uh, your uh, social media posts that they went out, like, uh, against uh, professional rules. Uh, and um, usually, I disagree, of course, <laughs> but you you should promise that you are, will not break rules. So each time I promise, I keep my I, like I try my best not to not to uh, not to break rules. But you know uh, how you can follow rules if uh, the rules are biased. So how you can follow it? And um, uh, last two band one time I was the third time I was banned for six weeks. So it's very hard, like, just imagine what is happening for one day. Imagine the volume of events that are happening during six weeks. And I wasn't speaking online. So that was the way when I started my offline activism. Um, and then last two times that I was banned, uh, I see the difference uh, towards uh, uh, like so of LinkedIn towards me because they are getting banned to me very quickly, but then they were very quickly they are getting me back uh, getting me back uh, because um, uh, I receive a lot of complaints from Russian bots and trolls, so I'm getting deleted, but then. There should be a human being who checked my contact, whether it's correct one or like normal or not, and I'm getting back with my content. So my content with after human after when a human being checked it, it was fine, it was normal, but just that I got deleted, and it's very uh, in very wrong way. But they started doing it, still deleting me. It's very for me. It's like each time I'm having a heart attack. Um, after my six weeks ban, and after during those six weeks ban, I talked with an American team. They they changed me to an American team, and I talked with them, and then I talked with European, with a European, and then, and then again with the American team. So it was like they know me well now. So I I'm sure that there is one uh, LinkedIn uh, professional who checks my content. Uh, yeah, but. Uh, and that's it. It's, uh, LinkedIn, yeah, it seems to be more of a bureaucratic problem there. Uh, and the way you describe it, it sounds quite confusing. And they're probably quite confused behind the scenes about how to deal with Russian trolls and bots. Twitter is a very different case, however, isn't it? Because um, in the recent hack of Yandex, and uh, also there was a leak of the Twitter algorithms, and certainly there seems to have been a conscious effort in Twitter to downplay anyone talking about the war, anyone putting forward a Ukrainian point of view. Um, the uh, NAFO um, network, uh, NAFO network, um, so I'll be picked up on my pronunciation of that by, by, by people if I get that wrong. Um, that also has been muted uh, deliberately um, so that's not just a sort of institutional bias. That's a very specific bias against uh, the Ukraine point of view and those who are supporting it. Um, that That is extremely concerning, isn't it? Uh, it is very dangerous. It's very dangerous, not only for Ukrainians, but for free speech of Europeans. And I think that... Uh... 
Europeans, uh, Westerners uh, should be the first one who should be very concerned about the topic why Ukrainians are getting banned. So it's not only about Ukrainians, but it's about your free freedom as well. And um, um, I, I have a very uh, good example about uh, Twitter when I was banned uh, the first time. Um, I remember that I saw a post uh, of someone uh, that um, um, Medvedev was writing about that like Ukraine shouldn't exist, this country doesn't exist, and some all of this horrible pro propagandistic stuff, and which was uh, also violent. And the post, Elon Musk refused to delete that that tweet. But then there was a screenshot of a Ukrainian woman writing about Russians, also in a bit violent way. I agree that it was a bit violent, but it's the same level as Medvedev, or, or even like a bit slighter, because she is just simple person. But that guy is like with a huge following, and he is a politician. And uh, Elon Musk, like Twitter, deleted her post and banned her, but they didn't ban Medvedev. And as I know from last news, that now uh, either all all profiles or uh, or some uh, they, uh, Twitter deleted this that it is like a Russian government profile, but it should be written there. Like people should be aware that it's Russian media, the Russian media that it's Russian governmental profile. And I think that they changed something there. Unfortunately, it's like it's very dangerous because. Uh, as a friend of mine said, like uh, Marine Marcus, he is a data scientist, um, and he's also very active on LinkedIn, that 90% of the war is information, 90%. It's about what messages you sent, what do you know about the war, what do you know about the past? Because the war, uh, Russian aggression against Ukraine, the war didn't start in 2022. It didn't start at, uh, in 2014 and in 20, in 1991, there is a long history. And to understand the context, you need to look at the history. But for us to show the history, we need to speak. And we shouldn't be muted, but we are getting muted all the time. Absolutely. And um, I mean, the last area I wanted to focus on really leads on from that and its traditional media. And I would have liked to think that traditional media would have a bit more depth. Uh, and a bit more uh, nuance behind it, perhaps, than social media. But nonetheless, we still see uh, war fatigue. We see uh, a, a lack of stories about Ukraine in the mainstream media. Um, they report the high-profile events. Of course, they report the drone attack on the Kremlin. Um, and there still seems to be a very strong Moscow Kremlin-centered bias, as you said, an editorial bias in choosing stories. Uh, from that point of view, whenever I go to events uh, in London and they come to the Q&A, uh, whether it's sort of reporters or academics or the public, almost all the questions are led by, you know, what does this mean for Russia? Or it's like, blah, 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 Russia. And then, you know, Ukraine as a footnote rather than, you know, the opposite way around. Um, and if, like me, you know, you, you you don't watch that much of the mainstream media because it's not very informative. But when you do dive into it, you find that there's all sorts of ignorance, bias, both unconscious and maybe even conscious sometimes, that again presents things from an entirely, I would say, mo either Moscow-centric bias or is just sort of ludicrously superficial uh, or even overly optimistic, especially when it's talking about, you know, um, resistance in Russia or, you know, people who are being um, drafted, um, who are against the war. I mean, there's all sorts of uh, sloppy language and sloppy thinking. Do you, do you find that as well in European media that you, um, you look at? I, I see it everywhere. I see it in each level. Um, starting from social media, finishing with uh, traditional media, and also when I talk one-to-one -to, -one to people, because I talk a lot with uh, Western Europeans, I talk a lot with Americans, and uh, I see this optimistic opt optimism, but there is no reason for optimism, to be honest. I don't see any sign for you to be optimistic about democracy in Russia. Like, I don't see those 
optimistic signs because I talk with Circassians and uh, I talked with one girl on Twitter and she told me that I will not reveal my name, I will not reveal my appearance, and I will she will she refused to speak with me like on a call because she said that two of her relatives are right now are in prison captured. There is no uh, there is no sign of of democracy in in uh, in uh, uh, in Russia because for me democracy towards uh, Russians in Moscow like those like you know white pro like I don't like I will say white I, I'm, I'm also white but like the, those Russians who are like in Moscow and they are rich and they 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 don't suffer they for them there is a democracy because they are rich they are russians uh everything fine with them but what about chechens what about dagestan what about Turkestans? if they will live de democratically for me it will mean that russia is democratic but now there is no democracy and there is no sign for democracy in russia because uh so it is that and about uh, traditional media and about uh, it's it's very Russia centric. It's very about Russians and what Russians do and what Russians think. Of, and I don't know why it is like that in minds of uh, of, of Westerners, because uh, maybe because uh, Ukraine starts to be very active uh, in communication only like recent years. But before we were never active, like we were never targeting you, we were never sharing with you our about us. But Russians, Russian propaganda was working, has been working for centuries. For centuries, they are donating money, they are showing that they are rich, they have great culture, they we have great sportsmen, we are we are awesome. And uh, it's, it has been happening for centuries. Although that about culture, half of their culture is stolen from other nations. So it's maybe even more. And um, when, unfortunately, I become uh, very um, upset. It it literally, you know, when uh, like I'm 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 talking a lot and I'm spending a lot of my time efforts. And for me, it's painful because every day I have to speak about Bucha every day. To be honest, like for me, maybe it's harder to be in Europe because now, now I need to speak about Butcher every day. But maybe in Ukraine, I wouldn't need to speak about it. And when I speak about it, a lot of people ask me, oh, what do you think about, what is your, like, they hear it, they hear my story. And their first question will be, oh, what do you think about Russians? What is your, what is your attitude to Russians? And I like, and I'm a bit shocked, like you just heard me being under the Russian occupation and I saw war crimes but your question will be not about how are you how is your family how you are coping with it maybe you need help do you need anything but first question will be but what is your attitude to Russians do you think that all Russians are responsible for the war and it happened to be not one time unfortunately and uh, so that is another challenge and for me it is a personal challenge that I need to I cannot get like you know into discussion. I cannot say that oh like what what are you talking about and you know become angry. I really need to cope with myself emotionally, and try to educate and tell people why it is a wrong way, why it cannot be like that, why it cannot be Russia centric. And as I said earlier, Russian centricity is in academia, is in media, it is in business, is in in on individual level. So. Uh, Mm. Well, well, we'll end on a more positive question because we'll talk about Ukraine and I think it's appropriate to, to, to end it on Ukraine and not talking about the aggressor. But one thing I wanted to point out that occurs to me with what you just said, Russian propaganda is extremely expert at weaponizing its victimhood or its perceived victimhood. Um, this is the same psychological propagandistic trick we saw with the Nazi regime, you know, they're being aggressive, but they blame somebody else for that aggression. We're only defending ourselves, blah, blah, blah. I mean, Russians, again, have done this for decades, is poor little Russia, look at us, always invaded, all this, oh, you know, etc. And it's extremely effective. And that is one of the last 
mythologies that I think needs to be tackled because it is an imperialistic, aggressive colonial technique, which we really need to kind of weed out of the Western narrative and coverage of Russia. Um, Yes, many people suffered in the Second World War. And in fact, the majority of the suffering and destruction took place on the territory of Ukraine and Belarus, not Russia itself. But let's 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 not mention the word Russia again for the last few minutes of the interview. Let's turn to the health of democracy in Ukraine. And are there reasons to feel far more optimistic about the evolution of civil society, democratic institutions for the entirety of Ukraine when it's liberated? It is an amazing question. And uh, I must say that I'm so proud and I'm so glad how Ukrainians reacted to uh, the Russian aggression because um, first, before before in, in in january in february people were speaking and people were like a bit depressed and of course it is very depressing news like that you will be attacked but once we got attacked 100% of ukrainians said we will win there was no another choice like we will win because we won't let uh, someone else to rule us we, we won't let our someone else to to, to be that to behave like that you are not you you are not allowed to behave in such a brutal way and it's mainly about civil society because civil society started for example like in my experience it was 7 a.m and i was texting to all my friends so like wrote in all social media that we got attacked what we need we need donations we need people to talk to talk about it and you know it started from the first day it's and like we were all active and uh, Elon Musk says that oh there is so many Ukrainian trolls but you know to be honest and to be like it's sad but when your ship is sinking you are calling SOS like it's what you do you are screaming help us like so all these Ukrainian trolls they are really real people who are sitting right now in the basement, I was the one who was sitting under the basement, and I was in a chat with, with, uh, with girls writing about on social media, on on media, co contacting global media, international media to write about Ukraine, and I was in the basement. But of course, like in a day, I lost all electricity. There was no chance to help me, but for me to help, to to I need to help myself, but how we started it from the first second that you need to be active on social media and it's also a lot about your talents some people will be active on social media as i am some people will go to volunteering because they are better with like these shipments with logistics they know what to buy they are more into like uh, this stuff some people will, will go to fight like how many ukrainians went to fight immediately first three days there was lines there were thousands of men standing and no one pushed them to the to fight they all stand themselves they got their own like if you own a gun they they took it and they were fighting they went to the army to defend their own country then how many another topic it is it is about our volunteers i'm so proud to be in, like a ukrainian because of our ukrainian volunteers themselves they they said, okay, we are collecting money. We need to to buy uh, for this brigade. We need to buy a drone. We are collecting all like for, for a drone. And for this brigade, we need to buy a car. So we, we are buying a car. And it's like, you know, about the level of unity and about the level of trust. Ukrainians trust themselves, like each other a lot because, um, of course, I'm young. I don't have that much money, but I remember that I spent like immediately one the whole salary just to all these uh, fundraising campaigns for cars, for shipments, for for drones, for etc. Because you trust, because you know that you see that this person is a sister of that. Like she has a brother who fights in that brigade, so you really trust the person because because a person will want to save her brother she will make everything to save her brother or you see that it, like it is a wife of someone or it's a, 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 like a, her father is fighting or you see that they are in that community like and you will do it and you trust and you how like 
we were so active and everyone was engaged into into victory of ukraine and are engaged because either they were uh, protecting their own city or women were cooking or we were making this uh, protection stuff uh, and all of this were happening and each person found uh, something to do. There is no single person who did nothing, like, except me, I was in the occupation, I was doing, I, I was surviving, but, you know, everyone was engaged, and it was, like, for a very long time, of course, that after a few weeks, after a few months, people had to start working, so if you are doing nothing, you are working for the victory, if you are working, then you, you are working and you are donating your, your money, so part of your salary to, um, uh, to 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 campaigns and for me it's very important now to explain why ukrainians donate money because for for, for other people it may seem that oh like uh, like western countries donate a lot to ukraine give a lot of shipments give a lot of this so why ukrainians are donating money why you are doing all of this uh, fundraising um you know as that's why of the reasons why revolution of dignity was successful. We don't rely only on our government. We do our stuff themselves. We want each of us want to be engaged. Each of us doing something for the victory. That's why uh, also that, for example, government uh, um, like government is a bureaucracy. Like mainly it's more bu bureaucratic way. So so soldiers need drone, but to to wait it from from the government, it can be like you know a few weeks. But when Ukrainians can just you know in in a day we donate money, we buy it, and we uh, we send it, and so so it will save the lives of our defenders already in a week. Or also it's important that. For example, governments, they talk about huge shipments like tanks, uh, some uh, some other like cars, some uh, missiles, uh, um, uh, protection, uh, protection uh, equipments. And they don't, they talk less about little shipments like drones, like uh, thermal imaging scopes or um, uh, these helmets. Uh, so these smaller needs, we do it ourselves like a lot. And also it's not talking about uh, uh, that we, we need to help elderly or we need to help uh, animals and protect animals or we do something for children. And it's very, there is so many needs and different needs and you just engage into one of these, what is the most important for you and you help and you you collect, uh, collect money. So it's very important and it's everything. It's about civil society and we now train and we build civil society during the war time but now we we know and we are so aware that we pay such a huge price for our freedom and for our democracy that we won't let anyone to take our democracy from us i think that's the inspiring part of it is just seeing how many people are active in such a variety of different ways and not every single initiative works. Not every single initiative is like a, a blockbuster, but it's that continuous pressure from hundreds of thousands of people sort of expanding freedom like a, like a gas. Um, and to end, I think, on this thought, what we see in terms of how Ukraine has emerged from being a sort of homo Sovieticus, uh, from a, a vassal of, of the USSR, to become a country with a strong identity. And now that identity has been projected around the world, I think the next step actually is for Europe and the democracies of the world to actually learn from Ukraine to renew their own concepts of democracy, which have come under attack and have actually been weakened over the last couple of decades. People have taken freedom for granted. They've taken wealth for granted. They've taken lack of corruption for granted. And I think you know, a realization of what Russia is and a realization that you can actually break out of that uh, and embark on a process of change and renewal through civic society institutions. I think that's a lesson we're going to have to learn to save and evolve our own uh, democratic institutions as well. Uh, I totally agree with you. Uh, one of my uh, main messages uh, was that don't take democracy for granted especially if you have been living in a democracy for a long time, 
you 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 got used to it and it's it's nice i'm very i'm very happy for people to live in democracy but we really always need to to remember that it can be different so and for me not taking democracy for granted it's about that you need to protect it and you need to always work in it and it, you should always have a strong civil society that will protect it that will watch democracy uh, will watch the government will watch others whether it works well because it seems that it's hard to break but to be honest it's not that hard to break like and you need to always work on it so don't take democracy for granted and also that i heard a lot about it some countries were uh, in, invited into uh, uh, United uh, um, European Union easier, so they're not still that democratic. And for me, like uh, for me as for like for Ukrainian, uh, I'm aware that uh, my country, my government is not like uh, the most uh, maybe not the most democratic. We have a lot to work on, especially in the terms of rule of law and courts and and justice. But now we, as as a civil society, particularly we grow so much that we are we know where to look at and how to look at our government and we know how to how to check it and uh, we demand a lot we demand more because we worked we we are working on our democracy so much that we are we we have the right to to demand and it's remarkable to see that progress. And, uh, you know, I hope that it continues in future years. I hope that it carries on accelerating uh, through and, and after the war. And, um, well, I wanted to say thank you so much. I know some of the topics we touched on are, 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 are tough ones, and we have to recognise what individuals such as you have been through. Um, but I'm hugely grateful to you for appearing on the channel. It's been a massive pleasure uh, getting to speak to you. And I advise everybody to follow your incredibly strong voice on LinkedIn when you're not banned. And if you are banned, everybody needs to pile in and complain to get you back on as quickly as possible. Thank you for giving me uh, uh, an opportunity to speak. It is the most precious for me. Thank you, and Slava Ukraini. Heroim Slava.